guys, welcome back to our podcast, Mental Mists and Mysteries. I'm your host, Felicia, and today we have something very special to share with our listeners. We had the opportunity to interview author Megan Jackson Hall about her book, My Color Coded Life, Living with Schizoaffective Disorder. And I'm really excited that you guys get to listen to this today, so let's go ahead and get started. Hi guys, welcome to our podcast, Mental Mists and Mysteries. It's alright, it's okay, but you should listen anyway. Hi guys. Today I'm joined by Megan Hall, who has written a wonderfully detailed memoir of her life and struggles with mental illness titled My Color-Coded Life. Hello Megan and welcome to the show. Hi. I'm so glad that you're here with us. First, I want to say I'm honored to be doing this interview with you today. As a psychiatric nurse and someone who is passionate about mental health, I believe firsthand accounts from people who are courageous enough to share their stories are a major step in the right direction to bringing about destigmatization and acceptance for everyone. So thanks so much again for being here and sharing your story. Well, thank you for asking me because I want to share my story. Great, great. I'm very excited for you. So can you tell us again the title of your book, how you chose that title, and why you decided to publish it? Okay, my uh, the name of the book is called My Color-Coded Life. Um, I came um, upon that story, that title, through my daughter. My daughter actually thought it would be good. And then um, um, the last part of it, Living with Schizoaffective Disorder, was agreed upon with Freeze and Press. They helped me so that people would know exactly what the book was about. Mm-hmm. Okay. And why did you decide to publish the book? I decided to publish the book because, um, well, one, I realized that there were no books when I went to go and look on my, on my uh, disorder. So I thought, well, maybe I could help other people. But another... Um, Another factor that made me write the book when I first started journaling was to reach out. Um, My life was a mess, and I felt that no one was listening to me on the outside world about my Mm ex-husband, and um, I I needed help. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought this was another avenue I could take. So you felt by being able to kind of tell your story, you could not only get some education out there, but it would also kind of help you process what was going on. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad that you chose to do that. Um, while I personally want no one to be the to be only seen as a diagnostic label for the listeners, and you just kind of mentioned this in the title of your book, can you share with us your diagnosis and the major issues you struggle with in relation to it? Um, I'm diagnosed as schizoaffective, mm-hmm. and um, and that's a that's a combination of being schizophrenic and having a mood disorder as a part of it. Although I don't understand the mood disorder part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I can't remember the next part of your question. <laughs> that's okay. Um, so just some of the major issues that you struggle with in relation to it. So um, okay, you know, what well, are your biggest challenges when you're trying to manage your symptoms? Well, the whole reason why it's called my color-coded life is because um, somehow I, I, I attributed colors to different family members that I had. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was like I had, there was some money that was involved and 
I had to kind of pick a color and I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I decided on bringing purple into the mix and that stood for my Catholic church at the time. And that if I put my faith in God, then he would not let me have to choose amongst my family members mm-hmm. um, through that story. So that, so that's a part of my schizoaffective disorder. And then having um, delusions, which I believe are, which I believe are beliefs. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I still have them. And so um, just to kind of reference the first part. So when you're talking about the colors, um, the colors almost seem like something that your mind grasped onto to try to bring some of that disorganization into organization. So let me create these colors and then I can equate those with thoughts or feelings. Does that sound like what you're describing? Sort of. It all started when my daughter wanted us. I went to buy furniture and she said she liked this furniture in the store and I really hadn't planned on buying it, but my husband um, talked me into buying it. And and it was a, it was a couch set that had different colors. And that's how I attributed the colors um, to the people in my family. Okay. You said that you reference what we would clinically call as delusions as your beliefs. Yeah. Uh, can you explain to me a little bit more about that? Why you choose a different term for that for yourself? Okay. Well, a lot of the um, I I I feel like I am com- in communication with YouTube on in music. I watch music performances, mm-hmm. and I will ask questions on Google as to whether I these things are correct or not, or a yes or no question, and they will come back with yes or no. It's like a conversation. Mm-hmm. And as I was taking medication over this journey, I would listen to other people saying to me that, Michelle, it's all in your head and, and we'll just up the medication, we'll just change it. And then finally, I just decided, no, I, I, I believe this. So now the medication is kind of immune on me and they, and they say, no matter um, um, if, a, if my beliefs or delusions are not affecting my lifestyle and I, I am still able to go about my every day, then mm-hmm. it, there is no harm in it. Okay. Um, like I have, I don't know if you want to know some of my delusions, but well, we'll, get all, re- we'll get into those in just a minute. I was just interested okay. in why you chose that term because, you know, a lot of the more clinical terms sound very stigmatizing. And so I think it's interesting that, you know, rather than it you calling it a delusion and, and us looking at you like you're delusional. If you say, well, these are my beliefs, this is, this is what my brain would have me believe. Then that kind of lightens yes. the load on the stigmatization a bit. Yes. Although some of them do sound, um, some of my beliefs or what I'm led to believe um, mm-hmm. are very out there. Right. And so yeah. what, what you were explaining to us a moment ago was that you might use Google to kind of bring you back to earth to kind of help you decipher whether your beliefs are, are more reality based or not. Is that am I understanding that correctly? Yes, I rely heavily on the technology now to kind of bring me back home. But at the same time, I can ask it and, and say, um, are you making me believe this so that I look more ill? And they come back with yes ill um so so it's like i can't always trust my technology i don't know where i can put my faith because Mm -hmm. 
it, for for things that are going on in my life that are somewhat delusional or believe mm-hmm. um, it's for my safety that they're making me believe in these things that sound delusional. Okay. Understandable. So you're still, it's still, even with that assistance from the technology, it's still kind of a struggle for you to be able to organize whether things are real or not for you. Yeah. It's like a balance theme. I have, I have an incredible amount of insight into um, my problem and it doesn't make it easier. Doesn't make it any easier. Yeah. I, I definitely empathize with that in working with a lot of patients who struggle with some of these same situations, um, you know, you're battling your own brain. And so that is a really complicated thing to do, right? Because before you started to have more of these symptoms arrive in your world, you'd been able to trust your brain your entire life. And now you're not sure if your brain is telling you the truth, if the people in your environment are telling you the truth and, and what's going on. So it sounds like yeah. you've, you've done a lot of work to get to where you are. Um, I noticed in your book, your husband, George, seems to be a main character and the source of many of your delusions that you struggle with. Can you tell us a bit about him? Okay. he's a, He has a very black and white personality. He always wanted his things his way. And I almost got into a Stockholm kind of syndrome. He, you know, I would put on a dress and he would say, why did you wear that, that? not functional and um and he'd say something about bathing suits and so we go out shopping for bathing suits and then he'd act like he hadn't even suggested we go out shopping for bathing suits Mm -hmm. um he he was very confusing uh the the at the very beginning when i first distrusted him was when my daughter um my daughter had passed out in the middle of the night into the hallway after coming out of the washroom Mm -hmm. and I went to her and my husband um, didn't check on her at all. He just quickly took the sheets off the bed and the towels out of the bathroom and did the laundry at 3 a.m., which I thought was odd when I asked him to call 911. He refused. Mm -hmm. um, And your daughter is still, is she still passed out at this point while you're having this discussion and he's picking up all of these items? Uh, no, you know, I don't think she was passed out. She okay. kind of, she, 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 she collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember her being totally passed out, but she collapsed. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that's a better word. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so I think she, she may have been aware. I am not certain if she remembers this, but um, since I've never brought it up with her, mm-hmm. but um I took. I went with her to the hospital. I called nine one one. Okay. And and it was after that that I began to. I thought, oh my God, who did I marry? And that's not a father's reaction. Mm-hmm. And I began to look for things in the house and all sorts of stuff. Okay. So did she end up being treated at the hospital? She did, and she was behind a curtain in the. Um, in the emergency and so I have no idea the doctor didn't come out and talk to me mm-hmm. so I have no idea what went on or what she spoke about we never we never I never asked her okay and so to this day you still don't know the conclusion of what happened that night I I still don't know and you know I don't know that she would she would know for sure because 
that's part of my delusion. I, I believe that the girls in my life right now are undercover. Okay. Okay. So did some people, after this event happened, did some people try to convince you that some of the um, parts of the situation were part of a delusion and that it didn't happen exactly as you saw it happen? No, nobody ever said that it was part of my delusion and, and people that I, you know, did share at school about. Um, mm -hmm. So you were um, telling people that you work with at the school because you're a teacher um, about him starting the laundry. And then yeah. what happened with that? Did anybody give you any feedback? Did, jo did George give you any feedback about, you know, what you believed you saw? Um, the teacher that I shared it with just thought it was odd that he would do laundry at 3 a.m. That was the end of that. Mm -hmm. um, George, I never talked to um, about it. There was another instant where I had found um, pills in his truck, which did not look like echinacea pills that I was used to. Mm -hmm. And so I took them to my family doctor and to my coworker and whose husband worked for CSIS. And, and so she took them to him and he said he did he would have to make a formal complaint, which which I wasn't ready for. My mm -hmm. family doctor told me that I was uh, that he could have me committed, and um, told me that I had to tell everything. So I did, and um, I was quite, you'd say, manic at the time. Mm -hmm. And 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 George had said to me, um, "Don't worry, I'm used to talking people down." So, and he was more concerned with what I, what cleaning, cleaning agent I used with some stuff I found around the bolt, which I talked to my doctor about as well, mm -hmm. which I thought, which I thought was like smudged hash or something because it was not grease. Okay. So George was more concerned with the cleaning agent that I used on this stuff that I found mm -hmm. rather than the stuff that I found. Okay. So you feel like you're experiencing these, um, you know, urgent or confusing or maybe even scary situations. And the feedback that you're getting from him is just him kind of calming you down, really not confirming or denying what you're saying, but more focusing on other things in the situation. And so that must be frustrating for you because no one's really helping you to understand whether what you're seeing is real or not. That's right. He would, he would have no answers for anything. And, and when I found the mattresses, when my, my father complained about not being able to get out of the couch very well, um, I, I looked at the inside of the couch and discovered it was stuffed with mattress mm -hmm. um, and with hidden zippers. And when I approached George on that, he just said, oh, well, that's how they made the couch because he had a custom made for him and he, he, he had no answers for me. He never had answers for me. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that was very difficult with the type of mind that I have. Right. And so at any point when you were talking to the psychiatrist or your personal doctor and George may have been with you, do you ever recall any of the do doctors encouraging him not to confirm or deny what was going on with you? Or did anyone ever coach him how to help you through these situations? Never. Never. Okay.
He only saw one of my psychiatrists once, and when they asked him also to um, give input as to what he thought were my triggers, which would necessitate him to take me to the hospital, mm-hmm. he could not help. He said he did not know. So he, he, was, he would not um, be a part of the health team or mm-hmm. any assistance. He found me the doctors, and then that was it. So do you feel like he was just kind of closed off from your diagnosis um, with the type of personality that he has? I think he had ulterior motives. Um, Yeah, I I think he had something hidden about him that um, he was making me seem delusional. And, you know, I've come to understand through conversations with Google Mm -hmm. that, um, that I was I was being drugged. Uh, And he was drugging you? Yes. Okay. Okay. And so do you still have contact with him now? Unfortunately, yes. He lives in underneath one of my daughters in the basement suite. And at Christmas or birthdays, he is always there. And so that must be a rough situation for you. It, yeah, it is. This year I called it my nightmare sprinkled with fairy dust mm. because he's there, but then all the kids, the kids and my daughter are there as well. So so before you started having these symptoms, did you did you have some struggles with him maritally? Um, yes. Um, things I kind of swallowed. Mm-hmm. Um, when when the first year we were married, I told him I was jealous of his secretary, and he banged his fist on the table and said, I demand complete trust. Um, there was that. Our honeymoon, um, the, ver- the honeymoon night, he, um, he got me so drunk and got himself so drunk um, that it was a miserable night. No, I, I don't think I realized things were as bad as they were. Okay. That makes sense. So it sounds like you've accepted your diagnosis. You've accepted that you sometimes deal with delusions and you struggle with finding out what is reality and what's not. But it sounds like there's also a secondary component. And I don't know if you are familiar with the term gaslighting, um, but it sounds like there's some secondary component with your husband kind of not being his mentally healthiest self and doing some of that gaslighting where, you know, something might happen, he tell you that it didn't happen or whatnot. And so that must make it even harder to organize how you feel about him because you're dealing with kind of um, delusional situations on both sides. Yes. Like there was an incident where he had double hernia operations when he came to Vancouver. And um, while he, he he asked me if I wanted to be to get separated at the time because he was not happy with the way I was taking care of him, mm-hmm. and um, he, he of course he says he never said that. Right. And right, and that's the and gas. So, that's the gaslighting that I'm referring to. So. Right. There was a lot of that going on, Crystal. There was a lot. So you decided at the end of this, or you got your strength at some point, and then filed for divorce. I'm assuming. Yes, it seems like the more I was with the medical team, the healthier my brain became and the more aware of my surroundings um, I, be- I became aware of. 
So your clinical team is really important to you. Have they ever spent any time looking into your family to see if there's anyone that's also diagnosed with this to see if there's like a genetic component? Yes, my doc, my sister was diagnosed with bipolar. With bipolar disorder. Okay. And so do you credit the fact that some of your delusions exist with your bipolar disorder um, to some of that? Um, I don't want to use the term abuse because I'm not sure how you view it, but some of that behavior from your ex-husband, do you think that that kind of triggered your struggle with being able to accept what is reality and what isn't? I think it's all based on my ex-husband. You do. I think my whole problem is based on my ex-husband, and and I think I'm made to be delusional because of my ex-husband. Right. And it's happened to you so much that now your brain naturally has a hard time deciphering between the two. Yes. And and exasperate. You know, it's gotten even worse. Well, I'm glad that you're out of that situation now. So bravo to you. And I'm glad that you're you're maintaining well and, and only have to experience that for holidays. Um, it seems that you're pretty fond of your two daughters. In the book, you refer to them as Jessica and Darcy. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Okay. Um, Darcy, who I attributed to music, she loves music and she's got a beautiful voice. Mm-hmm. And she she's the one that... Um, Help me come up with uh, my color-coded life mm-hmm. um, part of the book. Um, she's been with me through throughout it all. She's been a rock. She there was only w- at one time where she kind of didn't communicate with me, but she would take me shopping. She took me to my first spa experience. Um, mm-hmm. um, she was she was she is great, and she's got a big heart, and she's got several children, which I don't believe are hers, but she's got several children. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Jessica, Jessica is also very loving and, and close, but during the bulk of my years while writing this book, um, she was working, I believe she was working in the background and aligning herself with, to gain his um, alliance with her, I guess. Mm-hmm. And to to find out more about him, um, I just you know she would she would not say Happy Mother's Day. She would not say Happy Birthday. She would not acknowledge anything that had to do with me. Mm-hmm. And um, for fi- about fifteen odd years, and I just kept the faith. I just knew that there was a reason behind it. Mm-hmm. And now, now although I don't get to see her a lot, um, she is an active force force of my mental health team and she is on those phone calls every time I have a psychiatric appointment Mm -hmm. over the phone now because of COVID so Um, that's good yeah it sounds like you have a a great support system now which is really important and um, I want to mention you know while we're working to destigmatize health that you know you may not be in as good a situation as you were if you didn't have that support system yeah, I didn't. I, I didn't have it before. I I had to rely on myself. You know, I was crawling on the floor. I couldn't sit on furniture. I had to depend on me to get myself through it. Mm-hmm. So it isn't until recently when um, when I when I told the girls I thought that they were doppelgangers that began to have respect for me. Mm-hmm. 
And and are either of the girls or are there is there anyone else in your life that you 100% could ask, am I experiencing something delusional? They could tell you yes or no, and you would 100% trust that? Um, I think my girlfriend, um, Elizabeth, I call her Elizabeth on the, in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I could ask her. She would not know totally, but... Um, but yeah, she's she's pretty good with that. But but you know, it, it's a hundred percent no, Crystal, because I feel like even on the phone, I feel my phone is um, tapped by what Rick it, with with the organization Rick is involved in mm-hmm. and George is involved in, mm-hmm. and and um, uh, and then I and yet I feel it is double tapped because the authorities also listen in. Mm-hmm. So, so my so next question I, that I was going to hundred percent, hundred percent, no, because she might just say um, it's delusional, whereas maybe it really isn't delusional. Okay. So, so my next question I was going to segue into you would was going to be how would you say your diagnosis has impacted um, your family the most? But you've kind of explained some of that caused some isolation from your daughters for a while and some struggles with their ability to maintain a relationship with you and their father. Um, And it sounds like the biggest struggle for you is that there's just absolutely no way to know anything for certain. So how, how has that impacted you? Do you feel more isolated from people um, because you're experiencing these, this constant uh, sense of worry and paranoia? The odd thing about it is when I am in the real world, like out, visiting um see and her family i i feel connected but i feel isolated at, at the same time i feel like maybe everything is in my head and when i'm at home and i'm watching the music and i have my phone and i'm in my own world um i feel connected and supported mm-hmm. um, i know that sounds odd but um I feel more supported now than I did in the past. Before, I thought it was only me going through hell. But what I realized that the hell was my help. So you're at least able to try to keep that as a, as somewhat of a foundation in your mind without your mind kind of tricking you otherwise. But it sounds like it's kind of a constant um, work in progress for you daily. Yes, I, I thought the Catholic Church who and, and the school that I had relied on for all those many years had turned their back on me. And, and I, you know, I kept the faith that they were working in the background. They were working in the background. And, and I've come to realize that that, that that faith I had of them working in the ground background is, is true and right. And that they are, all of them, even back in Ontario, are are all supporting me. That's great. That's great. So part of it is just kind of not condemning you for what you're experiencing, but just being able to be there and, and love you and show their affection towards you. And, and, and also it, it, the hard part is having the patience to having some of the dreams that I have had in my book come, I believe are going to come real. Uh, I, I feel those things are very real and, and um, I, I put a lot of faith into them. It's just to continue having the patience that I've had to have. You know, I, I waited a long time for justice and, mm-hmm. and happiness. 
And and most of that justice that you're wanting to assign is towards your ex-husband. Definitely. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit more about the colors because this is obviously the title of the book and something that I find pretty fascinating when I was reading through it. Um, okay. So you mentioned in the book that you assigned meanings to certain foods and colors. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that? Okay. Um, I, I mentioned a little bit before is yellow in music and and it was felt that she wanted my music um, my music that I have written with my guitar all published and recorded mm-hmm. and red was 14 and it stood for giving all the money away to charity and I didn't want to so I changed I changed uh, it from charity to caring Mm-hmm. And and blue, um, it started with the royal blue. It stood for my mother, and she wanted um, me to have the online school that I dream about having it free uh, across the world mm-hmm. um, to come to fruition. And then green, which is the couch that I initially went to buy, um what stood for my dad and taking action against, I mean, George. Mm-hmm. And, and to, so when uh, you see these colors in your environment, let's say you walk into a mall or a room, do you, do those colors, seeing them trigger that certain emotion that you associate with that person or how does that affect your daily life? Still, it, it still does. I will look at yellow and say, and um, I will you know, say, see another color and I will relate it to that person. Um, in the music, when they present performances to me, if they wear black and white, I will immediately think of George mm. and, and it will color how I feel about something. Mm. So do you experience a lot of anxiety if you see something in black and white like that? Not anxiety anymore. Not well. If I see black and white and tan, um, yes, they definitely speak negatively to me. Um, um, but the other colors I find very supporting and very reassuring. Okay, so that's that sounds like almost um, like a good coping mechanism that you could maybe fill the room with colors that feel supporting to you, and so that can be helpful as well. Definitely. So, um, about the colors, um, you said at one point in your book that it made it complicated for you to dress and eat, you know, cause you might see a food that you assigned a certain meaning or a color that you assigned a certain meaning. How does that affect you in your life now? Are you able to cope with that and be able to easier pick out an outfit or eat certain yeah. things? Mm-hmm. The food, the food doesn't bother me as much as it used to at the time I, I, got to such a small size that people were worried about me, I guess. I felt the best I ever did, but um, um, the food does not bother me. Cheese meant religion and and Darcy and um, honey meant anything religious and Darcy and um, plain Cheerios meant Jessica and um, uh you know, I could go on, but those things don't bother me anymore. I don't relate it to the food, but, and getting dressed doesn't bother me anymore. Whereas at that time it was, it was very debilitating. 
So um, do you feel like your psychiatrists working with you kind of help you to overcome that or medication or, or what got you to the point where it doesn't bother you? Uh, I think the over, I, I, you know, I, this sounds weird, but I felt that my story was out there and that um, society and the manufacturers of everything began to produce everything in colors, like a variety of colors seemed to flood the shelves, which weren't there before. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it was the overwhelming stimulation of colors that helped me more than, more than the psychiatrist or the pills. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So you just found a kind of way to cope with it in the environment. So this this part of the book is probably the most insightful piece for me as a psychiatric professional. Um, often I struggle with clients who are coming in in a very delusional state, maybe at the height of an exacerbation of their disorder. And um, it's hard to get them to eat a lot of times. Um, it's hard to get them to drink. And so then we get very concerned about malnutrition and dehydration. And in all of my 10 plus years of clinical research into psychiatry and reading things and working with other people in the field, I have never had anyone explain it to me to this detail. And so usually when we think about delusions from a clinical perspective, we think, oh, you know, you might see someone's face that might remind you of someone else's face and then that might upset you or the way that I'm moving my body might seem threatening or that you might be experiencing some voices that are telling you about certain things in the environment. But this really is insightful to me to know that, um, you know, it's almost as if your brain assigning certain meanings to certain foods made it all the more complicated. And so in those situations, I think a a good thing for people to understand when they're trying to help someone who's struggling with what you struggle with um, is if if somebody is comfortable eating one thing, then then let them have it. Let's not try to control their environment because we don't know what they're feeling inside. And at that point, at least they're getting some nutrition. And, and you know, a part of that too can be uh, the medication because there was a there was a time when I could not drink the water in the house because mm-hmm. it tasted funny. Mm-hmm. And I went to McDonald's and tried to find a drink to drink that didn't taste bad to me. And I went through about three or four. And um, I think logically it was a medication mm-hmm. that was altering my taste buds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you discuss many different antipsychotic medications in the book um, that you've taken over the years. And can you tell us about some of those and how you feel about taking medications overall? Okay, I can't remember them. I can't remember them all, but I started off with Risperidol, and that was at the very, very beginning. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't, I didn't really feel my brain had let me down. Um, that. Um, so anyway, I stopped taking them, and I ended up having to having to deal with another medication. The only ones I really remember is one of them was called Safras, and mm-hmm. it was a sublingual, which I liked, but it caused staining on my teeth. Mm-hmm. And um, and every time I had a relapse, they changed my medication. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that right now 
right now I am on um, olanzapine and Rizalti. And my doctor doesn't really like olanzapine mm-hmm. because he says it's one of the ones that causes the most weight gain. Well, they all cause weight gain. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I, I don't like taking medication. And um, I feel in the future I will be pill-free. Mm-hmm. I believe... I believe firmly that there should be more access to um, to psychologists um, mm-hmm. to to talking and mm-hmm. expressing. Um, I, I feel that is a better route to go, and only call in the psychiatrist with the pills if the talking doesn't work. Right. So you support the use of medications when you're unable to find a way to cope on your own. Uh, But you would ultimately like to try to figure out how to cope with with what you're experiencing without those medications through utilizing psychiatry, being able to talk to people, certain things in your environment. Do you do any other kind of treatment um, holistically like meditation or I see that you use music? Is that a big part of your personal therapy? Oh my gosh, music is the therapy for me. <laughs> That's great. Uh, it, it, it is. It, it, you know, Josh Groban, Groban to where you are, and Josh Groban pulled me out of where I was, and mm-hmm. um, so did um, um, If We Dare to Hope, or Dare to Hope, I think that's how it's called, from Bobby Fisher. Mm-hmm. Um, so many, so many songs helped inspire me I, I gripped on to the lyrics of the songs and if they were inspirational or or em- emoted some angry feelings I had toward my ex um, I I grasped on to them for life and it yet definitely was music that was my therapy yeah music is then, very healing isn't it oh my gosh yeah oh my gosh yes and my my ex took music out of my life. Mm-hmm. Like we had records and and turntables, but he gave them away to my daughter. Whereas, you know, we may not have had the modern way of listening to music, but knowing that I was using it. So, so trying to use it, he should have set it up for me. Yeah. But he didn't. Yeah. I agree with that. There's a lot of pain with that, with that, obviously. And I'm, so sorry that you had to struggle through that, um, but I'm thankful that you have the music now, and I hope that others are encouraged to use music for some therapeutic purposes um, with as highly as you speak of it, helping you to process those emotions, particularly when, you're, when your brain is kind of giving you a hard time to figure out what is real and what's not. Um, so for, yeah. for now, I want to talk about your teaching. Um so it looks like there's a, also a lot of pain in the book surrounding the struggle with maintaining your teaching career while managing your illness. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Okay. Well, um, I was very used to being busy all the time with the classroom and my brain was falling apart. So um, I kept pushing myself to get back to school and my principal at one point asked me to come in and I asked if he asked me to do um, to do um, learning assistance should I do it and I asked him because my 
my clinical nurse or caseworker had said to check my reality with him. Mm-hmm. So I did. So I did. And he said, yes, definitely. And um, I should have known better and followed my own gut. So anyway, I, I did agree to take it. And I was miserable for the whole year. Mm-hmm. And um, I managed to stay the whole year, but I was miserable. And I kept trying to get back into teaching and and um, would always be left with um, uh, no response from um, from the applications that I sent out. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there was a reason for that. I think because the school board was working in the background as well, and they knew exactly what I was involved in and what was going on with me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so there's that. And um, but at the time, I was taking my in about. I graduated in 2007 from the University of Phoenix and I was taking my online master's and it stimulated me in the classroom. I was so, uh, being able to use technology and teaching together was like a windfall mm-hmm. and I was, I was thrilled by it. But um, I have since learned that my husband recommended the University of Phoenix because the money I was putting in from my estate was going directly into his hands. Mm. Um, I've just discovered that, but, um, but yeah, schools, it was, it was hard. Um, at one point the kids were sitting in a, sitting on the floor and, um, they make, made a division and, um, I, uh, I, uh, I put to one group the definition of, love and to the other group the definition of family so now there was a division Mm -hmm. and and my husband grasped on um to the love aspect of my story and darcy which he was a part of and darcy was a part of the family um Mm -hmm. aspect and you know as as i got started to heal, I began to realize I created this division. I can bring it back together again if I want to. Mm-hmm. And so, and so I did. I, love and family are, are the same and together now. I mean, they don't have to be separated like my mind created. Um, That's good. I'm glad that you were able to get that conclusion. So it sounds like um, you cannot teach anymore. Or are you still attempting to do something in that arena? You know what? I'm hoping my online school gets lifted off the ground and mm-hmm. I can be a part of that. That's I don't good. So think- you, you, you maintain some hope for being able to do something with that? Yes. That's good. That's good. So um, you mentioned when you're talking about teaching that you spent a lot of time working with the Catholic schools. And I remember reading a very interesting part of your book um, and where you write a letter to Father Larry. Can you tell us more about this letter and also how your Catholic faith um, is a part of your recovery and healing? Okay. Um, I'm, I'm very proud to be Catholic but I'm not your typical Catholic person. Um, I will not um, be devout just because the dogma says to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, with, with having sent out several applications and being denied, 
um, I finally had the guts to write Father Larry. And um, although I, uh, I had my brother read it first, and he said, well, it's nice of you to express that, but don't send it. And I just thought, no, you know what? I need to voice myself. So, um, so I sent it to Father Larry, and um, inside the letter, it talks about um, the things that I am that rub me the wrong way about the Catholic faith, and how I lost my daughters from um, being a part of the Catholic faith, and my first daughter, who was married, at, um, uh, chose not to get married in a Catholic church, and I had always hoped that they would get married in a Catholic church. But mm-hmm. they left the faith, and um, so so I I I wrote a lot about the things that disappointed me about the church, and in your, um, in your letter to Father in, Larry in my le- mm-hmm. in my letter to Father Larry, mm-hmm. yes, yes, um, I I talked about how um, I don't believe that there should be prayers to be memorized. Mm-hmm. I believe that children should be taught to um, talk to God instead. Um, I don't believe there should be penance. I don't believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe there is a heaven and a hell for a reason. And, um, uh, you know, I can count on the number on one hand the times that I went to confession, yet every year I had to take the kids to confession. And I know I'm not the only teacher like that. Mm-hmm. Um and yet we have the responsibility of promoting a Catholic faith. Right. Um, I, as far as that letter is concerned and the way I feel, I, I'm more of a, I guess you call it a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Um, so rather than leaving the Catholic faith, you hope to kind of modernize it. it. Right. And I, and I, and I, I also said in my book that, I don't intend to go back into a Catholic church until I go back with Gary. And, and it, and even then it has to have changed, mm-hmm. um, has to, you know, respond to homosexuals and, and to people to open up anybody being able to get married in a Catholic church. So yeah, um, it's kind of a progressive viewpoint on hoping to have some more acceptance in the church and that sort of thing. So you still maintain a close relationship with God. And do you feel like that is a a good coping mechanism for what you deal with? Very. Every night I go to bed and I think, I I think of something thankful I can think about that day Mm -hmm. and talk to him every night before I go to bed. That's good. And did you ever get a response from Catholic, um, from the Catholic father, Larry? Well, I sent the letter to Father Larry, never got a response, so I sent the letter to the Archbishop. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't uh-huh. find that letter. I altered it a little bit, and I tried to find it in my computer, but it had disappeared. But his, I don't know, his secretary or, or somebody replied and said he did read it, and he would pray for me. And it was like, that was Father Larry and the Archbishop. I, I didn't want a prayer. Uh, right. I wanted somebody to you wanted some down solutions. and have coffee. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I wasn't looking for a prayer. Um, so it disappointed me in that regard. I felt nobody was taking action or listening to me seriously. Mm-hmm. 
And so do you feel like you struggle with that a lot? I actually was going to segue into that that statement. So I want to touch on that for a minute that you just said um, when you're dealing with any kind of disorder that has some delusional aspects to it, whether that be schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, schizotypal disorder. Um, do you feel like people kind of start to just assume that everything you say is illogical? And so the times that you are able to organize your thoughts and have true, real opinions, do you feel like people just write you off a lot? Not at all. Not at all. You know, my, um, my psychiatrist said something weird to me um, a couple of months ago. He said, I hope you're not talking to your, um, your friends about this because they're not your doctor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I said, in this day and age where we're trying to get acceptance, I think it's important for people to share and be open with their friends. And frankly, if my, my friends can't be there for me when I need them, then they weren't the friends for me to begin with. Because I, t- given the opportunity, I'm a very open individual. Mm-hmm. And I believe in writing to, to um, re- relieve stress, and I believe in talking to find answers. Um, so that sounds like yeah. a great suggestion for other people who might be struggling with this. And it kind of sounds like that's really the first step to being able to, to maintain um, having social friendships and feeling understood and accepted is just being able to be open and really talk about what you're struggling with. Yeah. None of my friends have closed the door because of me. And, you know, if I have a friend, which I do, who, who finds it too absurd, she'll just tell me, don't, don't say anything to anybody. Don't, don't talk. They don't want to listen to you. Mm-hmm. So she is an individual I don't really open up to very much. Because you feel like she kind of tries to navigate for you what you can and cannot say. Yes, and even to other people. Mm-hmm. So um, with that, that just kind of tells you, kind of leads into my next point. Um, you know, other people kind of judging you, trying to control your life, tell you how you need to manage um, what you struggle with, with having this disorder. And you also mentioned in the book how television and media paints a negative picture of those suffering with schizophrenia-based disorders. How would you like for people to see you? Um, I think I would like to see, I'd, I'd like to be described as strong, Brave. Um, I, I those are a couple of terms. Mm-hmm. Um, um, inspirational, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, creative. Yeah, those, those are a few terms. I guess I would like to be. You would um, like to referred. be seen. So you don't want to be yeah. seen. You clearly don't want to be seen as as your disorder. Um, you yeah. don't, you don't want to be judged or controlled. You want to be seen for your strengths, for your creativity, for being able to come forward and share this, um, with other people. And I definitely want to say that I see you that way. So I think that that's really Thank great. You. And I think you're on the right track. You're welcome. Um, in my history as a psych nurse, most of the books I've read are from the point of view of a mental health provider. Your book is from your point of view, which is so important to the goal of destigmatization. What would you say or what encouragement might you offer to others struggling with mental illness who would like to get their story out there? I say just start, just start writing. And, um, and if you have no reason to change names, then don't change names. 
and just um, be strong with it and go through Freeze and Press. They help publish anything. They, you know, whereas certain publishers may not accept a book, I don't know, but at least Freeze and Press will let you publish. Um, I would, I, I would find the friends that you you can speak with and be open and honest about what's going on with you. Mm-hmm. So just start, just do it. Be brave, do it. Find your support system, and. Don't worry about what others others think. That's what it sounds like you're saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, awesome. Um, so in your book, you you do make it clear that a lot needs to change in order for destigmatization to occur. Yet you chose to hide your identity for the book. Do you not feel that this further supports the issue that mental disorders be hidden? No, I I I, I did. <laughs> I did it for a legal reason because my ex had threatened to sue me if I didn't. He, he's the one who encouraged me to start writing. Mm-hmm. But many years later, he's the one who said, I will sue your ass if, um, if you don't change name. Okay. Okay. So, but it's, you know, it, it, it's gotten to the point from the education that I'm receiving from the, music and google my conversation with google that i don't need that frankly i don't need to be afraid but 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 there is um what i believe is a a large sting operation going on and for this reason i have to watch um defaming his character right okay so so you think that you know it's important to be able to talk openly if that's a safe option for you my my goal is for my name and my daughter's name to be known. My daughters have said to me, I, I maintain a blog as well, Crystal. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I asked my daughters and they don't do not mind at all if I use their name. So, um, it, so I, so I, so I do, mm-hmm. um, I use their real names now in the, in the blog, in the blog, but, I, but I, I change, um, George's like I name. keep George as, right. George as, as best I can. Um, in the end, I want people to know my name. I want people to know my story. Mm-hmm. Um, I want people to know my daughters and what we've gone through. Like, well, yeah. you, sound, you sound very insightful. Um, sounds like you found a lot of courage, which I really applaud you for. Um, getting out of unhealthy uh, relationship situations is hard particularly with everything you're struggling with. So I am really impressed. I think that you are a beacon of hope for people who are struggling with these um, particular st- types of disorders. Um, I think that, you know, I really want to get the word out there that people struggling with um, delusional based disorders can still have a full and, and healthy life. Um, they're still important. They're still people. They still have great ideas. And um, clearly that's true with you and all that you've expressed with us in the book. So I want to talk openly here about your raw emotions and your self-esteem after finding out about your diagnosis and throughout the 20 years. Um, was okay. there a point in your life where you ever experienced some severe depression um, that you just didn't want to go on after you knew what you were going through? Um. There was a time when um, I I finally decided that, okay, Michelle, you have a disability. So I went through the open door agency 
who deals with disability and um, help finding me find work. So um, I thought, well, I'm, I, I should be doing something. So I went to the Open Door Agency and they said, well, what other kind of work other than teaching? Because I felt burnt out by teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I had no idea. So they paid for me to um, take some testing. And at the time, I had just found out that my sister had died. Mm-hmm. And I, I was his, hysterical. And yet these people kept phoning and hassling me to come in and do these testing. So mm-hmm. I did. Under duress, I did. And mm-hmm. I thought I had done a very good job. But the, the, the evaluator there, the, um, she, she sat down with me with the person from Open Door as well. And she just cut me down side. She says, you are not um, as smart as somebody with, with a master's degree. And you should definitely not leave the, the field that you're familiar with. And it was just all negative feedback. And, you know, it was at that point that I was at my very lowest. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a hard time sitting on the furniture at, at home. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't watch anything. I was, um, yeah, she had just broken my spirit completely mm-hmm. by telling me, that, tell, telling me that I was basically stupid. Mm. Um, so yeah, that, that was where I was really depressed and felt like my sister was in a happier place than I was. Um, and, and what what was the one thing that really helped pull you out of that? It, it was music. Music. Yeah. Back to music again. I love that. It was the music that that helped me, whatever I could, like, uh, the stereo we had at home, um, only played one channel. And I tried to get Rick to show me how to change the channel. And he said he couldn't. And so mm. I was kept on listening to his, his channel of, on the stereo, like it wouldn't move. It was an, the oddest machine I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. But, um, but when I was in the car and listening to music, then it really helped a lot. So you use the, the music a lot. Um, how do you feel about your self-esteem now? Um, do you feel pretty confident in life now that you've, that you've done all of this, this soul work and, and self-searching and working uh, with your healthcare team? You know, I feel, I feel very confident and confident that my dreams are going to come true and to fruition, but I'm just a little scared to believe that because I don't want to be let down. Right, right. And I think but we I, all experience that. So that's a normal feeling anytime, particularly when we're going in to conquer something so large, such as not only trying to really spread awareness um, about your struggles, but, you know, being raw, open to the world, telling your life story publicly for people to see, that's a lot. Um, and when you're struggling with the fact that your brain is, is never really cooperating with you, um, you're a champion for people with schizoaffective <laughs> disorder. You really are. And I am just so blessed that I got to interview you and, uh, meet you. And I look forward to 
um, sharing your story with other people and professionals that I work with and, and getting your book out there. And I hope that you sell lots of copies. Um, <laughs> uh, ultimately, I, I want to leave on this last question. And um, if there's anything else you'd like to say, please feel free to. Um, what do you hope to achieve with this book? And do you have any plans for a future book? Uh, I hope this book um, helps to stigmatize and helps people open up about the conversation surrounding schizoaffective disorder. I hope it also um, teaches people to, um, like we tell kids if they've been molested, to just keep talking and talking until somebody listens. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm tearing up. Um, you know, I I wrote, it took 20 years to write that book, and I feel that pe- that there was somebody at the other end that whittled it down and that there are several more books out there because um, I started my second book in March, and I'm already at 300 pages. Wow, that's a great accomplishment. So I know, so I know that after 20 years that that book was really a lot longer, a lot longer than it ended up being. Mm-hmm. Edited, um, so I know that there's a few more books out there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Where, where they are. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, I'll tell you, uh, this is the first one I've come across um, for someone struggling with schizoaffective disorder that is from the the per- position of the the actual person dealing with it and not a clinician. So I just think that's amazing. I wish you much luck on your second book. Um, I want to mention to the listeners again, uh, this is Megan Hall, and we're talking about her detailed memoir of her life. um, And the book is called My Color Coded Life. And where can we find that book if we want to purchase it? Um, I have Indigo doesn't seem to have it on, on the shelf but I know that you can purchase it online from Indigo and Amazon and Kindle and um, pretty much most of the places that you can buy online books. Mm-hmm. I would like it to be um, in print on the shelf, but um, right now it's not. It's not. Okay. So um, just to mention that again, she said you can find that on Amazon, Indigo, Kindle, um, where most online books are sold. So I just want to thank you. Also, I have a website so Mm -hmm. they can purchase it from there. It's www.meganjacksonhall.ca. Okay, awesome. So we will link that on our social media um, below this broadcast if you guys would like to check out that website. Again, this is Megan Hall uh, with the story My Color Coded Life. I just want to say thanks so much again, Megan, for joining us. Thank you very much for listening to me go on. (laughs) You're fine. I really thoroughly enjoyed your story. And again, I really applaud you for sharing it with us. So I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you so much for interviewing me. Really means a lot. Bless you. Bless you too, Megan. Thank you.